Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. By now you probably know my name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Now today for the first time, we have re-invited a guest back, not for his second interview, but for his third interview, A, because he's my favorite guest, but B, because I think his content, his insights, his experience, his own character is so important for all of us as leaders to know, understand, and model in our roles. I want to reintroduce the renowned author, Stephen M. R. Covey, to On Leadership. Stephen, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Scott. It's always great to be with you. You have other things to do than to come back as my third guest. <laughs> but literally, as, uh, as part of the production team, I'm able to have some say in the guest. And we are uh, large enough now to where we have guests booked three and four months out. Mm -hmm. you know, great CEOs and best-selling authors. It's been a wild ride. But every couple of weeks, the team says, let's have Stephen Mr. back on because you're, although your content is um, not evolving, the principles are, are, are you know, ironclad. Right. Your experience, your relevance is becoming more and more so. So today I'm excited to have you back on to talk about specifically the theme and the role that trust plays in innovation. Great. In, in building nimble, high-tolerant yep. risk cultures. And I have in my hand an article you wrote recently on, in CEO Magazine about that topic. We'll get there in a moment. Okay. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Still doing extremely well. New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal number one, CEO Reads number one, uh, Washington Post number one, every number one list. You've lamented privately how you hit number two on the New York Times. Like it's a little <laughs> under your skin, but don't let it, sir. Uh, two million copies sold yeah. stands for its own, right? Uh, the global influence of this is indisputable. Uh, your father, of course, the famed Dr. Stephen R. Covey, uh, named you're one of the uh, one of seven, one of how I many kids? children? One oh, of nine. One of nine children. So yeah. I should know that by now. Yeah. Um, uh, the eldest child, correct? Of the boys, at I'm, least. And the oldest son. Yeah, eldest son. Two older sisters. Two older sisters. You're third in line. A lot of kids. It's hard to keep track of all nine, it right? Is, Pre forgive it me. Is. Uh, I do. You've re-released the book in the past year. Mm -hmm. uh, similar co cover. The content is the same. What's new in the new edition? You know, we just updated the data and the, and the information and also the examples and the stories yeah. just to be current and fresh and relevant. And that was a big idea behind the Speed of Trust in the first place is to show how practical and tangible this is. So the content is the same. The principles are the same. But it's just refreshed with data, examples, stories, and metaphors and the like. Great. Well, the book is still excelling extremely well. It outsells most books in the marketplace, but it doesn't earn a spot because you kind of you had your run on the bestseller yeah. list. But how many languages is it in? Uh, 22 languages. That's now. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. We were talking off air about how you speak Spanish pretty fluently. Do most of the publishers get the translation right and you're pretty proud of how that ends up? Well, I don't know because right, I, right. I, I only speak Spanish. And, yeah. and so all the others, I just have to assume that it is. But but uh, I think for the most part they do, and I know that our Franklin Covey team of licensee yeah. partners around right. the world yeah. usually get involved and they help to make sure that we get the translations right. But it's been exciting, and, and also I'll say this, Scott, that I uh, personally have been I've, have presented Speed of Trust in about 54 different countries in wow. the last few years. Right. And so that's always a thrill to see how these principles apply everywhere in the world. They're truly universal. Now the practices um, and you know the applications can be very contextual, very cultural, yeah. but the principles are universal. And that's been exciting to see trust really play itself out all around the world. 
You were the CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, your yeah. father's firm, prior to it merging with Franklin Quest and 23 years ago becoming the Franklin Covey Company. So yeah. you have the unique vantage point of being a CEO of a large multinational corporation. You then took a little bit of a sabbatical. You, you wrote, you studied, you synthesized your learnings. How long has the book been out? Book's been out uh, 13 years now. 13 years? Yeah. Did you ever think it would be in 22 languages with 2 million copies sold? You well, hoped? It, it, was, it was maybe my wildest dream. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so I thought, you know, I was hoping against hope that perhaps it could happen. Yeah. And i and, um, just delighted that it has. And I think the reason it has uh, kind of had staying power is that it has become so timely and relevant. I think it's more relevant today, Scott, than it was when I first published it. I think it it's more relevant ago. today. You're exactly right. Yeah. Because it's so, you know, it's, people are talking about it. It's the new currency. Well, I also want to pay you a compliment. I think that your brand, honestly, the congruence with which you choose to live your life, professionally and personally, you're the best possible evangelist for the content because everyone who meets you, everyone who knows you, that works in our firm, from our chairman, Bob Whitman, down to the receptionist and across all parts of the organization, know you to be a man of at least striving to walk your talk like your dad. Yeah. Well, so thank I pay you that compliment. Thank you very much. Let's I, dig in. I strive. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of listening in on a discussion you were having with one of our publicists about this article you were writing yeah. for CEO Magazine. It just came out, I think, in um, July, is that right? Yes, yeah, this in year. July. Right? Wildly well read now. And what I love about the article is you share a fascinating insight around Blockbuster and Netflix, which really speaks to the role that innovation plays. Kind of walk us through your insights yeah. on why Blockbuster became Blockbuster and why Netflix is where they are, and kind of share some of the insights from the article. Yeah, well, the article is called Nothing Fails Like Success. Yeah. And it comes from the story in Arnold Toynbee, the whole idea that, you know, you look at civilizations and they have a challenge that comes and they learn to create an innovative response to that challenge. The challenge comes, good response, that's success. But then the nature of the challenge changes and their once successful response no longer works. That's the idea of nothing feels like success. So in this case, you know, Blockbuster was an entertainment company and they were succeeding and, and they had a, a, you know, physical stores and the like and people right. would go in there and, right. and buy the videos. We all know this, or rent the videos. And they went through transitions with technology from beta to VHS to DVDs, mm -hmm. but the world was changing and you saw streaming coming online and, and it's gonna happen and, and they didn't evolve and change with it fast enough. Whereas Netflix, by contrast, from the very beginning anticipated that things were gonna go to streaming. So they came out with the DVD by mail, right. but they didn't call themselves DVD by mail. They called themselves Netflix even before the technology was created because they knew where the puck was going to right. be, to use right. Wayne Gretzky metaphor. Right. And, they, and they said, we're gonna go to streaming at some point, but we'll, we'll start off with DVDs by mail and we'll be prepared. They were two steps ahead of the game. And they actually had approached Blockbuster about saying, why don't you, uh, we'll, we'll be your online streaming partner. But Blockbuster was too wed yeah. to their old model of right. physical stores and also the model of you know, collecting late fees from customers. Right. They would turn part of back. their revenue, wasn't it? Huge part of their revenue was right. late fees. They, had, they couldn't do it. They couldn't. The business model was so successful and deeply entrenched, they couldn't see past they that. They couldn't see past it, or they didn't want to, or they were afraid to. And therefore, nothing fails like success. Their past successful response of physical stores with late fees and their old model 
was no longer relevant for the new opportunity, the new challenges in society. And now they went from some 9,000 stores, there's one left. Right. Is, it and Al- is it Alaska? I don't know where it I, is. I saw a, um, a, a documentary about it. Yeah, yeah I just read there was one store yes, left, right. and, and, uh, and, but, but whereas uh, Netflix has had phenomenal success around the world with subscribers, but they're always staying ahead of the curve. And, and they're very innovative, but they're also built upon uh, trust. Right. They, they have what they call you know, right. freedom and responsibility. And the whole idea that, look, we're going to give a lot of freedom to our people. That's trust to our people. But with that, comes a lot of responsibility to be, to, you know, to be responsible to the trust being given to right. you. But they create an environment where people are innovative and, and it's not a, they're, they're encouraged to take a risk, even make a mistake as long as they learn, get better, stay ahead of the curve, they innovate and, and they succeed. And so just the contrast, and that's one that we all understand and get because we, we're consumers of it, right? And the contrast between what happened with Blockbuster, right. not innovating, right. what happened with right. Netflix, innovating. And trust is really foundational to all of that. I know this story to be uh, accurate because just a few days ago, we interviewed Patty McCord on this yes. set. She was the former chief uh, people talent officer at Netflix. She helped to found it with Reed Hastings. Reed, yep. And they used a frame where they only hire what they call fully formed adults. And then she challenged it and said, well, Reed says no one's ever fully formed. Right. But, so at least we hire adults. But they do have this high trust, high accountability culture. But I'm guessing from discussion with her, the freedom to innovate and to think there is tremendously present and, and tangible at Netflix. A- absolutely. That's, the reality is you're not going to innovate if people don't feel like they can make a mistake right. and learn. Right. And they won't feel that way if they don't feel that there's trust there, that, that people have their back, that they're allowed to take a risk, a responsible yeah. risk. Yeah. It's, but it's a deliberate behaviors by leaders. A, a, a mutual a, friend of ours, Chuck Farnsworth, yeah. who you hired, and he was the founder of the education division. He hired me, has now one of my lifelong friends and mentors. When I first came to work for him at Franklin Covey, the Covey Leadership Center, he had a concept in the division called pre-forgiveness, mm-hmm. where he's, Chuck would say, I'm not sure it was his term. You probably learned it from your dad or your uncle or your, yourself. And he talked about how you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. You can't bring the house down, right? You're empowered to make these level of decisions. Come to me beyond those. But it was it, it raised the level in the team where you didn't want to have to cash your chit in with, with Chuck, <laughs> right? You wanted to take your level of risk because he so trusted you, but you right. didn't want to go over the edge for fear he had to bail you out. And I think this concept of pre-forgiveness is a maybe not a precursor from trust, but it grows out of trust, does it not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're going to make mistakes. It, Some of them are going to be okay. Don't go too far, right? Absolutely. It's, it's an extraordinary declaration of trust. He's saying, look, I trust your judgment. I hired you. I hired you. You're a winner. I hire winners. I trust your judgment to try to do the right thing. And yes, you're going to push the envelope. Don't go too far. Right. So there's trust there. Right. And the, you know, don't go too far. But I trust that if you take a risk, it's because you're trying to be responsible about it and trying to innovate and create. And that pre-forgiveness is basically saying, Look, there's a net here, <laughs> and and you can take a risk, right. and and you've got a net to fall into if you need it. But be responsible about it, and there's a huge trust. And what I like about what you just said, Scott, is how you responded to it. You don't, you know, you didn't want to say, well, "I'm going to take advantage of this, do whatever I the want." The opposite. The opposite. And then I, and then I, it worked so well in his division. I mean, his retention was high. Yeah. And it became a mantra of my own. I, I, I my, part of his legacy was me instituting it hopefully in the teams that I've led. Your Netflix example is visceral, but it's also maybe a little bit um, lofty for some. We don't all work for Netflix, right? 
you shared an example in a previous discussion I had about a recent speech and um, consulting engagement with a university. Would you talk about the level of trust this new leader was placing in their team? Because I think it's more tangible and inspiring for all of us. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, uh, I got permission to share. It's uh, Pepperdine University, and it's uh, Jim Gash. He's in coming California, in. California. Right? And Jim Gash is coming in, the brand new president. And he's, you know, getting to know his team that's there. And he's got some deans of the schools. And, and one of the deans has come up with to him and said, look, uh, you know, I'm excited to work with you. I've got this project I'm working on. Uh, um, you know, here's this thing I need to move forward with this. Um, you, I assume you're going to need to... Like a white paper? Yeah, a white paper or or? to look at this, to approve it, and this and that. But I feel really strong about this and really good. It's right. But it's going to take you some time to do it, you know, to read. It'll probably at least be 45 minutes, maybe a lot longer. And he said, you know what? He stopped him and he said, Michael, I trust you. You can move ahead with this. If you feel strong about it, you can move ahead. I'll get caught up on stuff later, but right now we need to move. You feel strong about this. I trust you. And the interesting thing was that, and Jim said this in front of me, in front of Michael, the whole team. He goes, I did not, I, I don't know Michael well, because I'm brand new in this role, and Michael and I are new in our relationship. But I, but I know people that know Michael well, and they all tell me he's gold. And I trust them, and they say, I can trust Michael. So I start with trust. It's a better starting point. And we move farther. We move faster. And you know what? The interesting thing, I talked to Michael, and I said, how did this, how'd you respond to this? He said, you know what? I want to prove the trust justified. Yeah, right. I want, to, I want to rise to the occasion. That I want to perform better. That story will go like wildfire across campus, right? It will. It yeah. will. And, and it'll basically be saying, look, Jim trusts us. And no one wants to let Jim down. And we want to perform at our very best and give it back to them. So you not only help people perform better, but they reciprocate and return the trust. It becomes a virtuous upward spiral. And that's really, really powerful, is you, you start by extending trust to people and they give it back to you, and it brings out the very best in them. Stephen, you're spending a lot of your time writing, interviewing, speaking, consulting at board level, CEO level, major you know, government leaders. We all hear the value that speed has. You, you, know, you, you were cool before speed was cool, right? You were talking about speed for a decade now, but you hear this everywhere, right? That everything's about innovation, nimbleness, speed to market. Uh, break down for the millions of leaders that are listening or watching yeah. today. What's the correlation between a low trust culture and a slow culture and a high trust culture in a fast, nimble, innovative environment? Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing. Trust always impacts two measurable outcomes, always. Speed and cost. And when the trust goes down, in any relationship or on a team, in a company, with a customer partner, in a culture, when the trust goes down, you will always find that the speed will go down with it. Everything will take you longer to do, a lot longer. And the cost will go up. It will cost you a lot more. That is a tax, a low trust tax. And why is this true? Because you now got it, when there's low trust, you got to take all these steps to compensate for that lack of trust. Whether it be checking, verifying, validating, are dealing with the redundancy and the bureaucracy and the rules and the levels and the layers that tend to get put in place in lower trust environments. That is a tax, it's a low trust tax. But here's the good news, is that when the trust goes up in that relationship or when it goes up on the team, in the company, in the culture, with customers, with partners, in the marketplace, when the trust goes up, the speed goes up with it. You can do everything faster, infinitely faster. The cost comes down. That is a dividend, a high trust dividend. And Scott, it's that simple. 
It's that powerful, that predictable, and it's playing out everywhere. Just the example I just gave you, Dr. Jim Gash, just extending trust, he moves fast. And, you know, he didn't have to spend that time researching this. He trusted this person. It was not a blind trust. It was a smart trust because of the context behind it yeah. and the people that knew him that validated and vouched for him. That person had built a credibility He built a credibility. Right. He had a reputation. Right. He had a brand. Right. And, and, and he didn't need to micromanage him right at the outset. Instead, he wanted to extend trust to him. And you move, you move fast. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust. Nothing is as agile as a culture of trust because you can respond and adapt and be entrepreneurial. And when there's so much change and disruption hitting us from every angle, we need that agility. We need trust to help create the culture of the agile culture and the speed that is so vital. So that's why it's so Stephen, what would you say to the senior executive leaders who are listening to you and say, yeah, it all makes sense. It's intuitive, but I can't afford to have a, a, a lengthy document put out in public that would take me 45 minutes to read. It obviously has some gravitas. I'm probably going to edit some pieces of it. I need to make it better and make sure that it's you know, on brand. What, what counsel do you give to the senior executive that would say, I, I can't afford to take 45 minutes, but I also can't afford to have significant things put out in public that don't have my you know, permission or sure. my authority because I probably could make it better. Perhaps sure. they could. Yeah, perhaps they could. And again, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. There might be other situations where the smart thing to do would be to say, hey, let me help collaborate with you on this, yeah. and we'll do, do something together that we can make it even better. So it all depends on the context. Some situations, yeah, maybe I'm going to get involved and say, I want to be a collaborative partner to you. But in other situations, like the one that uh, Jim Gash was describing, it was something that basically was entirely in the domain of his yeah, dean, right. and he felt like, What's I he gonna nothing add to really add, to it? Yeah. I trust you. Yeah. And so, you know, it's good judgment. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, you find that sweet spot, right. and you look at the context, you know, what am I extending trust on? You know, the situation, what's the job to be done? Am I extending trust to... Is the value I'm going to add worth offsetting the the low trust that will become for me micromanaging your yeah. project. Right? Yeah, so what's the contest? What's the job to be done? What makes any trust on? What's the risk involved? You know, is it just like the example of the pre-forgiveness, Chuck yeah. said, can't have anything that's gonna take us down. If right. it's too risky, I, I'm not gonna spend that, extend that much trust, that's not smart. What's the risk involved? What's the credibility of the person or the people involved? And then that, those combination, those three variables, the situation, the risk, and the credibility of the person helps give you a sense of judgment. You use good judgment of when to trust, maybe when not to trust quite as much, or how much to trust. But my whole point is that when you can trust, when you can extend that trust, you get all kinds of dividends. You move faster, you get greater creativity, innovation, people rise to the occasion and they give it right back to you. Talk about virtual environments. Yeah. I, I'm gonna guess there's some correlation with the most agile, nimble, Innovative companies are also hiring people from around the country and the world. They're not the all world. situated in a you know, couple mile area. Is, are there any insights you would add or offer to leaders that are trying to grow, trying to build a culture with a dispersed workforce? It's harder to build trust with someone who you had never met. You might see once a week on a video conference, a Zoom right. call or something. Any tangible tidbits you might give someone to say, how you extend and build trust in a virtual environment. Yeah, well, let me say this, that the virtual environment increasingly is becoming the new normal. Norm, right. The new, yeah, the new norm, and, and um, we're seeing it more and more. I just was with an organization that had, 
you know, a, a supply chain that was worldwide with people who have never met each other physically face-to-face and probably never will. And yet they were a team working together and collaborating. So that, that's kind of the reality. And it is a little bit more difficult. I acknowledge that. The degree of difficulty of the dive, to use the you know, Olympic metaphor for diving, is higher when it's virtual or, or dispersed. But the principles are the same. It's just that you have to be more intentional about it, more deliberate about it, more explicit about the trust that you're giving and why. And you go in, you declare your intent. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we're trying to do it. And, and um, you know, here's our expectations. Here's how we'll be accountable to each other. And, but you still operate on the same principles of declaring intent, clarifying expectations, practicing accountability. It's just that you're more explicit and, and deliberate about it. And people tend to respond to that. Here's what's interesting, Scott is that today we have so many tool, technology tools for collaboration. Yeah. That's the good news, is that we got these great technology tools to collaborate. The question is, do we have the trust to be able to collaborate? And if you think about it, trust is the ultimate collaboration tool. I just was at a conference speaking where they were talking about global supply chains. It was a supply chain conference. And the basic premise was, we have the technology to do everything we need to do. It exists to, to collaborate. The question is whether we have the trust mm-hmm. to collaborate across borders, mm-hmm. across functions, sometimes across industries even. And, and, um, and so, in a sense, trust is the ultimate collaboration tool. But we have to be intentional and deliberate about it. Is trust a luxury that is uh, talked about in good economic times, but for the skeptic, it's just not realistic in high growth, high innovative companies because they can't afford to take missteps or take risks because one big one could you know, put them behind a week or two from a competitor? Uh, I think just the opposite. I think it's even more vital in difficult times because that's when we have to be more agile, more creative, more innovative, come up with solutions. And again, I don't want to you know, um, put, put myself in front of my skis. We're not talking about a blind trust where we just go out and say, hey, do whatever you want. You know, the whole Silicon Valley mantra, fill often, fill right. fast, fill right. forward. Right. That's a good approach, but it's always within a context. Just like Chuck Farnsworth gave you a context right. of saying, look, this is not, don't take the firm down, don't go right. too far. Right. Same with Silicon Valley. They're saying, fill forward, fill often, fill fast, learn, innovate. But they're also usually will draw a box around it so that they're not too exposed. And so, again, I'm not saying you, you extend trust in areas that are too risky and, and too um, vulnerable that could really hurt the firm. But what you're trying to do is create the right environment, the culture where people are not afraid to take a responsible risk because they know that they have you back. Let me just say this. Here's what's fascinating about, about uh, this trust, high-trust cultures and innovation. A, a recent study from LRN called the How Report, shows this, that in a high trust culture, when there's high trust, people are 32 times more likely to take a responsible risk than they are in a low trust culture, and they're 11 times more likely to innovate. You think about that. In a low trust culture, when there's low trust, people will always be afraid to take a risk. They'll be afraid to make a mistake. And as a result, though, they won't learn and they won't innovate. And I love how Jeff Bezos says it from Amazon. He says, In- invention and failure 
are inseparable twins. You write that in your article. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and if, if you're not willing to fail, you won't invent. You won't innovate. You won't create. Now, look, that's all got to be in context within a parameter. Otherwise, it could become a blind trust yeah, and make right. you're too vulnerable. Right. So, again, right. not one size fits all. It's good judgment. Talk about low trust cultures. Why do organizations break the trust of their employees? How does a culture devolve? What, what's happening when you enter an organization and it's got a broken low trust culture? What's been happening specifically? Yeah, well, what, well a lot of times you'll see that they're trapped in a vicious cycle of, uh, of you know, what I call counterfeit behavior. Yeah. And everyone's spinning. Everyone's bad-mouthing. They're gossiping. I love your little article that you did on yeah. how gossip will kill nice. a team in the, nice. in the culture. That came from you. Yeah, well, the whole idea is to show loyalty. You speak about people as if they were present. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, the counterfeit behavior, the, the, the finger-pointing, the blaming, the hidden agendas, and people can get trapped in that. And these are good people. Most organizations, most teams have good people not trying to do evil, bad things. They're just surviving in the They're system. They, they, they've the learned system. to live in. they learned to live in that system and survive. I just was with another organization where they're talking about how um, in the culture, no one wanted to be the bearer of bad news because historically the bearer of the bad news got shot. Mm. And so everyone would sugarcoat it, spin it, yeah. dance around it. But the problem was the, the right accurate information was not getting to the senior leader and they couldn't act upon it. And it was kind of like, why don't you, do, why don't you just tell them? Well, there's, the consequences are too great. And so it was not flat out lying, right. but it was just kind of the spin and the sugarcoating, the survival tactics to stay alive. Stephen, talk... Um, I'm going to ask a couple fast round questions. Talk to an entrenched leader of a team who's part of the problem, and she or he's beginning to recognize it right now, that for whatever reason, right, it's all they've known, they've been trying to survive, and, and they want to change their culture. They've been part of the problem. They want to tomorrow begin to change their culture from low trust to high trust and become more nimble. What are some things that entrenched leaders can do tomorrow to transition out of that culture? Yeah. First thing is you have to be, you have to declare your intent. Because if you just start doing things without talking about it, everyone's going to say, what's he doing now? Yeah. <laughs> what, you know, what's he up to they're now? They're going to suspect what, what, that something's yeah, up. They're going to read something into it. Right. They're going to project different agendas and wonder what's the, what they're trying to get out of us. What, what are they preparing us for? And so you've got to declare your intent. And even, even then, when there's low trust and you declare your intent, Oftentimes, people don't believe you, <laughs> and they think still, you know, what's, what's the agenda here? But if you're consistent with you it... You to behave yourself into a reputation of credibility. Right. You, so you start by declaring your intent. Right. You know, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why. I'm open. I'm, there's no hidden agenda. It's an open agenda. I'm transparent. I declare it. I declare myself. I love how Doug Conant from uh, the you know, former CEO of Campbell Soup, Soup right. Company, one of his key principles is to declare yourself. You're open, you're transparent. Here's who I am, and declare your intent. Here's what I'm all about. Then, you're exactly right. Now, having done that, now I gotta model it. I gotta do what I say I'm gonna do. I just said this is what I'm trying to do, and now I gotta model it. So I tell people what to look for, and then I model it. So I might say, so we're trying to build trust here, we're trying to build this relationship, so here's what you can know about me. If I make you a commitment, I'm gonna keep it. I won't make a commitment I won't keep. If I talk to you, I'm going to talk straight. I'm not going to spin and tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what's really true. If I have an issue or problem with you, I'll come to you. I won't go around your back or go to somebody else. You know, if I have an agenda, it'll be an open agenda. You know, not a hidden agenda. See, I'm telling people what, what I'm going to do. I'm signaling my behavior. So I declare my intent. I signal my behavior. And then 
I do what I say I'm going to do. And I, I model it. I follow through on that. And people say, aha, you know, Scott told me he was going to try to do this. He told me what he was going to do. Yeah. And I see him doing it. And I start to say, ah, maybe, maybe it is different this time. Maybe I could trust it this time. And I begin to be open to new possibilities. Same advice you would give to a new leader joining a team that has a low trust culture. They should do the same exact thing. It, it is the same advice. Right. So the principles are the, Not are the same. No, yeah, but it's just that you also acknowledge in a low trust culture to begin with as a new leader or what have you, or where maybe you've been the problem in the past. If you were the problem in the past and you're trying to change, as my father used to say, and you know this so well as well, you can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. So if, if each of us have been part of the problem and we're trying to change, we got to behave our way out. And that will take some time. And it has to be consistent and demonstrated, but you can behave your way out of the problem that you behave your way into. You can't talk your way out, but you can behave your way out. So that's, you know, the reality. But someone else might come in brand new. They were not part of the problem, but they inherit a low trust team or culture. They're an inheritance tax, and they need to do the same things. They need to declare their intent. They need to tell people what they're going to do, and then do what they say they're going to do. I'd add one more thing. They ought to also start with listening first. And, you know, as my father says in Seven Habits, seek first to understand, then to be understood. In Speed of Trust, I say listen first. And the whole idea is you listen with the intent to understand. And most leaders come in charging, wanting to take charge and show what they can do. And they almost skip that step, thinking maybe that's a sign of weakness or inaction, when in fact, it's an extraordinary um, uh, behavior that will build the trust because when people feel understood, they tend to trust you. And when they don't feel understood or heard at all, they tend to be fighting for the air and trying to fight you and maybe not fully trust you. And so, yeah, it takes you some time, but then you move fast. So with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. So you got to listen first and really seek to understand. And that's another thing I see uh, Jim Gash doing at Pepperdine is... Uh, he started on a listening tour, and he, he came in as the new president. You know what? He met with all 36 Board of Regents members one-on-one -on -one wow. in their homes. Wow. Met with every dean, met with all the different people, had these one-on-one -on -one meetings. Not, the time not efficient. For those relationships. That's right. 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 He wasn't trying to be efficient, right. trying to be effective. And by starting with that kind of listening, that kind of behavior, listening first, Builds trust. I think that's an insight because I've written in some of the books that I've been a part of writing and the things that I've learned from you and your father. You know, one of my biggest struggles is differentiating between my proclivity to be efficient right. and the necessity for me to be effective. And that I'm, I'm going to bet that a lot of entrepreneurial CEOs, leaders of very um, fast paced teams, confuse the need, like I do, to be efficient with being effective. You're efficient with things and processes and tools, even some meetings, but you can't be efficient with people. You can't. And I'm, I'm gonna bet that when you've got an organization who's trying to build an innovative, fast-paced culture, when they have a low trust culture, it may often be because the leader unintentionally is treating all things efficiently and that, with a fast mindset like I do, when you have to know what to be efficient on and what to be effective on. This, no doubt this new president of the university had lots of things that they needed to tackle. Mm -hmm. And he is. But, they, but he slowed, and I'm guessing took weeks to have these 26 one-on-one -on -one meetings. 36. 36. Yeah, that was just with yeah. the Board of Regents, plus the dozens of other meetings right. he had internally. 50-plus people. Not just weeks. It actually took months. Yes. 
And he did this all as he prepared to take over as the new leader. And then also in this first uh, little bit as the new leader. But yes, absolutely right. It it's is counterintuitive because counterintuitive. people want to have quick wins. You come with the job. You want to show that you're there to solve problems and fix things. Sometimes that efficiency paradigm to get quick fixes can do, be, be damaging. Well, it can be damaging. And again, I'm not against inaction and, you, you, you know, and all these things too. So it's always a balancing act. You look at the situation in the context. In this case, the president had a little bit of time because he was announced as a new president, yeah. but he wasn't going to take over for right. a few months. So he right. had that time. It's a runway. He was able to do it. In other situations, someone might have to take over right away. But you still can operate by listening first. When I was with uh, Mike Garrett of Georgia Power, when he first got in as president at Georgia Power, here's what happened. He came in and he, and he started with saying, first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to understand. I'm going to listen before I try to do anything. Because I will learn better and I will do better when I do start to do things if I come in and understand first. And, and, and then he was a very decisive leader. It's just that he got his bearings and he got his yeah. sense of, of uh, gravitas from that. So it's just a better starting point. And you said it, Scott. You be efficient with things. You be effective with people. You manage things. You lead people. And, and it's a better way to, to approach things and to move forward. And, and um, you'll, get, you'll get better results in the long run. Can I give you one more illustration of this? And this is also ties in to the, not only the speed and the agility, but also the innovation. Um, so uh, Eric Yuan is the uh, uh, CEO of, of Zoom. Hmm. You know, Zoom video sure, communications. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people using Zoom. We use Zoom. Right. Others using Zoom. And they're, they're a startup. I mean, they, they were only around since 2011. And, and they've moved fast. Eric Yuan, by the way, in Glassdoor, you know, Glassdoor rates, you know, CEO yeah. people rate, you know, anonymous ratings. That's a brutal it rating is. system. It is. He was number one on the list in the, this last year. Number one, 99% approval rating. I couldn't get 50% from my own kids, you know. I mean, this is right at the top. So highly trusted. But he made this point that... Um, they had their big Zoomtopia, their annual users meeting conference, and he invited me to speak because he talked because he thinks trust is their key secret sauce, and 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 in this introduction he said, look, if you start with trust, you do everything better and faster, and you innovate better and you move fast. And for an entrepreneurial company, speed is everything, mm -hmm. and and there's nothing as fast as as the speed of trust. And with trust we move fast, without it we move slow, and that's why trust is everything. He said. And his whole point was that there's, there's a speed to trust. He was kind of validating this message from his own experience and practice. But it also was not just the speed. It was the, the creativity, the innovation, the entrepreneurship that comes from that. And because they were able to be so agile and so responsive to changes and opportunities in the marketplace when there was high trust in the culture. And, and uh, it's just a great illustration of kind of a leader coming in building a high-trust team and culture, being able to move fast as a result of it, but also being able to be an extraordinarily creative and innovative and taking huge market share in a short period of time. Stephen, when you wrote this book, I don't imagine you, you could envision its impact, but you led a team that then converted the content of this book into a work session that can be used with boards of directors, the C-suite, rolled out through companies. It can be taught in three hours, one day, two days, depending upon the nature of the implementation. Yeah. I recall a couple of years ago where you helped a, a, a global organization not just build a culture of trust in their own 
uh, institution, but they actually then offered the course to their suppliers, their vendors, their partners, their contractors. They wanted the entire kind of end-to-end -end customer, if you will, yeah. to all be a part of what it was their key value proposition. They were actually a food company, right? That's right. But they actually invested in so that there, there was transparency and mutual benefit of realizing trust across the entire system. And across the entire value chain. Right. All dimensions of it. And here was their premise, Scott. It was that they wanted everyone to have a common framework, a common language. Not just their employees, but their partners and vendors. Their partners, employees. their vendors, and and uh, the entire you know supply chain. Right. And and um, and even even up into the board yeah. and, and into the parent company and all the different dimensions of it, saying, "Look, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And if we can have a common framework, a way of thinking about this, a common language, so we can talk about it. Most importantly." an intentional process of how we're going to build it together, then we can do it at every level and every, every layer. And, and so the CEO led it, and, and, uh, and it became the, the true differentiator. They call it the true uh, you know, value um, differentiator of what enabled them to have extraordinary success. Right, to this day. Uh, yeah, and the great thing is it didn't start with the CEO. It started with yeah. a side pocket. Right, like an HR An leader, HR person, right? leaders yeah. becoming very, very proactive at building their circle of influence, building a high-trust team and culture, yeah. then spread throughout their team into the business units, and they saw how they built high trust. They became trusted partners, yeah. and the, 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 they needed this. They could use this, and then it ultimately bubbled up to the CEO, right. who saw the value of this, right. applied it to his team, took it to the entire organization, and then said, "Now let's take it to the value chain." Wow! And and um, and the and the economics of that, the speed of that. But I'll tell you another thing, Scott. It's not just the economics of trust. You know, greater speed, lower cost. That gets people's attention because everyone wants to have economic success. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, the even greater principle behind this is what trust does to people, how it creates energy and joy, happiness, innovation, creativity, inspiration. And we need that. People are looking for that. You know, people don't want to be managed. They want to be led. They enjoy coming to work. They enjoy right? coming to work. Right. They want to be inspired. They want to be trusted. Right. A great place to work, that type of thing. Trust does that like nothing else. The whole Great Place to Work Institute, all their work is, starts with trust as the foundation because that's the defining characteristic of what makes a company a great place to work. Mutual trust. And it brings out the very best in people. So as, as much as trust impacts speed and cost, and it's, it's incalculable what it does, the greater impact in the long run is around energy and joy. And by energy, I mean innovation, creativity, passion, commitment, inspiration, engagement of people, and joy, it's happiness, fun, satisfaction. We all love being part of a high-trust team. It energizes people. I think of Warren Buffett acquiring these companies. They come in, they've been acquired, they're all independently wealthy, they don't have to work for them, he doesn't even have contracts with them. They could go anywhere they want and they stay because yeah. he right. trusts them. Right. And, and, um, and he says, I trust you. He's got 77 direct reports, he trusts them. And they stay with them and they're, and they're inspired by it and no one wants to let Warren down. And so um, the quantitative is huge. I start with that because that's kind of the business idea. Right, the hook, it's the yeah. breakthrough and that's a paradigm shift. Many people never thought of trust as economic. Mm -hmm. And when you say it's economic, that gets their attention. But what sustains this is the leadership case for trust. 
how it's the one thing that changes everything, how it's a multiplier for everything else you're trying to do, including creativity, innovation, our topic for today, as well as passion and inspiration. You are burdened with the weight of this famous name, right? But you've gone out and carved your own voice, and no doubt you're still uh, uh, super proud of your father's legacy. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This is its 30th anniversary, 30 million copies sold. Uh, the book is being reissued in, um, in I think, the, the spring of this next year. What do you think is your dad's biggest legacy with you? It's just yourself. Well, with me, um, it, it's him as my father, not as this great thought leader. Something he taught you in particular? Well, yeah. Um, I would say this, that, that um, what I saw him model and what I saw him live, and he also taught it. And, and that is that his power was around his integrity to what he believed. And he would teach that to me, and then I saw him live it in how he interacted with me and with everybody else. And I, you know, I've said this before, that my father was good on stage and he was better off stage. Mm -hmm. And he could wow people with the presentation with great insight. But then he really wowed people when he walked off stage and treated everyone with the utmost respect. Sure. And the time he would take to listen to somebody and the affirmation he would give to someone. And he, he, so he modeled the kind of integrity around you know, believe, you know, practicing what he preached. He wasn't perfect. He had made his mistakes too. And he'd always he'd get asked, you know, do you live the seven habits? And he'd respond, about 80% of the time. <laughs> and he always tried 100%, but yeah. you know, he fell short too. Yeah. But he always modeled that. And so that'd be maybe one thing. If I could give a second, Scott, it would be how he affirmed me and most everyone he came in contact. And his definition of leadership, as you know, yeah. was seeing and communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they become inspired to see it in themselves. And, and that's what... He did with me. He, he saw my worth, my, my potential, so clearly that I came to see it myself. And, and it started when I was seven years old, when he taught me how to take care of the yard, the lawn, the old you're, green you're and the clean story. the famous green and clean story in the that's book. That's right. That's a trust yeah. story. Yeah. It's a trust story. It's a belief in me story to my work with him when we worked together on building Covey Leadership Center, to doing the merger, becoming Franklin Covey. Yeah to the thrill I had in my, my father's later years when, when I found my voice and I had something to say around yeah. speed of trust, yeah. when he and I would do some events together. And, um, you know, Magical, huh? It, it, was, yeah. it was amazing. Can't I look back on that with such yeah. fondness. Yeah. What a rare opportunity. And it would be great because my father would introduce me by telling the green and clean story and get a, a kind of a big laugh of, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was overwhelmed. And then I'd get up and I'd tell the story about how my dad left my mom on the side of the road one time That's in a, a travel story. situation. That's not in the book, though, is it? No. no I actually that, did put that in the did book. You, did you I, I put that? it in the book. It's a fun story. For those who haven't read The Seven Habits, which is like five people left, there's a great <laughs> story. If you haven't read it, pick it up around this idea of one of his young sons being taught kind of how to have a negotiation around keeping the yard green yep. and clean. And green and the famous clean. son. Your father has passed now seven years ago. The book continues to be as popular as it was during his years here. I see the numbers every week. It's phenomenal. Your mother's still alive. Yes. How's your mom doing? Uh, she's doing well. She's hanging in there. Yeah, she's, she's yeah. amazing. Yeah. We, we, we adore her. 
Well, the Love Covey you. brand is as strong as ever. Thank you for your contribution to Franklin Covey's content. The trust offering we have can be found at franklincovey.com. I hope everybody enjoys the interview. And what's next for you? Where are you spending your time? Well, I'm really f continuing to focus on trust, applying it to a leadership context and the style of leadership that is so needed today. You know, taking this whole idea, nothing feels like success, and saying the world has changed, but our style of leadership too often has not. Mm. And we need a new style of leadership that's relevant for our times and for the, the agileness, the entrepreneurship, the agility, the speed, the multiple generations at work, the inspiration that's needed. And that is all around trust and You're inspire. speaking to senior teams, boards yeah. of directors. You're keynoting a lot of conferences still. Absolutely. You're um, how many miles? Three, well, four, all, five million? I, I'm almost at seven million. And seven six, million. <laughs> that's on Delta alone. <laughs> and, and another million on the other airlines. Wow. And, and uh, um, so a lot of travel um, you know, all around the world. It's going to be gratifying, though, to be doing your piece in building peace. <laughs> well, it is just that. I feel, I feel like that, you know, we, we see a crisis of trust in the world yeah. where trust is going down. You look at the Edelman right Trust Barometer, yeah. other things, right. trust in media, government, political parties, business, going down. Political leaders. In, in political leaders. In some cases, never been lower. So that's a reality. There's a crisis of trust. But here's the paradox of that, Scott, is simultaneously in the midst of this crisis of trust, paradoxically, there is also a renaissance of trust taking place, of people, of leaders, of organizations that are saying there's a better way to lead. You're interviewing them on, on, on leadership, this webcast and podcast. You're, you're interviewing many of them, and, and they're talking about many of these leaders from the Patty McCords and others out right. there that are saying there's a better way to lead. There's a better way to operate. You can build high trust in a low trust world. And in fact, it's a huge advantage you cut through the noise and the clutter, you have a huge advantage that's hard to replicate elsewhere. And so that's the paradox. In the midst of the crisis of trust, there's a simultaneous renaissance of trust. And I see my role to be a co-catalyst with many others, including you, to help bring about a renaissance of trust in our world. We need more trust in our world, not less. And, and while it takes two people to have trust, it only takes one to start. And Scott, each, each of us can be that one. Stephen, you might be my fourth guest coming on. Thank you for coming back for the third time. You're welcome. Great luck on the next million miles around the nation. If you want to get in touch with Stephen, you can visit speedoftrust.com or franklincovey.com. Follow him on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. He's everywhere. And he's, of course, always available for speaking engagements in your company and working with your C-suite um, C staff as well. Stephen, thanks again. Great to be with you, Scott. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for another guest for On Leadership. If you're not subscribing to the On Leadership newsletter, it is now the fastest growing and largest newsletter dedicated to the topic of leadership. It's complimentary. Comes out every Tuesday morning around six o'clock Eastern time via email. It features an audio and video interview just like the one today with Stephen, as well as a downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's large tool chest, as well as a blog article written by me, it's complimentary. Visit On Leadership on the Franklin Covey website and subscribe your entire team. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us.